Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Last week, we looked at the dramatic encounter between two of the greatest apostles of the church, Paul and Peter. And on one hand, it was shocking to see Peter draw back from the Gentiles in fear, afraid of what the Jews from, uh, from Jerusalem thought of him. But on the other hand, how often do we see hypocrisy and the fear of man play out in the lives of people? So really, we shouldn't be that shocked by how Peter responded. Maybe the fact that it was Peter, we think Peter is an apostle, you, you would imagine that he shouldn't respond that way, but then we also know what Peter faced as a uh, before the, the Pentecost where he denied Jesus three times. And that same Peter, while transformed, is still transforming. And I think it's, it's just all the more reason why every one of us should recognize that the necessity for the Holy Spirit to make us even more Christ-like is so essential. This is the thrust of Paul's point in verses 15 through 19. Peter and Barnabas and the Galatians, they have forgotten how they were saved in the first place. They let their desire to, quote, fit in, and their fear of these so-called leaders really snatch away their remembrance and their foundation based on the core gospel. And ultimately, they failed to see that when Jesus saved them, he did so to give them new life, new life in Christ. And what I'd like to do is look at two ways in which this new life is realized in this text. First is new life comes about through justification. We see this in verses 15 through 16. And then secondly is that new life comes about through death in verses 17 through 19. So let's look again at verses 15 and 16. We're going to read this together. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. If you look at that passage, you'll notice that there are three phrases that are repeated. And when Paul repeats, or just the Bible repeats a phrase or a word, it's not done haphazardly or randomly. It's very intentional. And 
in these two verses, we see the word justified or justification repeated. We also see the phrase works of the law repeated. And then thirdly, we see the idea of faith and believed in Christ Jesus repeated. So what I'm going to do is focus on those three phrases because it really does explain for us what Paul is speaking about when he's saying that new life is ultimately found through justification. So we'll first look at works of the law. Paul begins verse 15 by telling Peter this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I mean, it's almost as if Peter, uh, Paul is saying to Peter, I, I get it. You know, we grew up as infants circumcised on the eighth day, which distinguished the mark of one who is part of God's chosen people. It was a sign of the covenant. And by that sign, it showed that they were different from any other people in all the world, which made them feel very special, unique, a part of a, a new community. And so everything that they learned growing up as young boys in the synagogues, learning the works of the law, and the celebration of all the different aspects of the Jewish faith, from the Sabbath and keeping that holy, to all the festivals and feasts, to the ritual cleansing that they would do right before eating, everything that they did and didn't do, even not eating certain meats such as pork, all of that reminded them and pointed to them the idea that they were special. They were God's people, unique, and all those things made them a, a very holy chosen people. So Paul saying, I, I understand that, Peter. I get that. But knowing this, Paul is even more emphasizing to Peter and Barnabas and that party that has come from Jerusalem, the, the circumcision party, the law party. He's saying, even knowing all that, we're justified not by those things, but by Christ and Christ alone. That they were forever going to decide that the law would not justify them. It wouldn't make them righteous. It wouldn't make them holy. So you might think, okay, but what does that have to do with me? I'm not Jewish. I, I look around. I don't think anyone in this room is Jewish or has, maybe someone has 0.001% Jewish blood if you were to do one of those genealogy tests. But really, no one here is Jewish. So you might think, this doesn't apply to me. How does this apply to me? Well, go back and think about what all those features that Paul considers as works of the law represent. They represent God deciding that this people is a holy people, meaning they're set apart for God. They are righteous. They reflect God's character and nature. And so the works of the law was always intended to show that they are God's ambassadors. They are reflecting God. And that's essentially what we as Christians desire to do. We want to please him. We want to be righteous. We want to be holy. We want to be reflecting God's nature and character. So in that way, even though we're not Jewish, and even though we might not think that we need to uphold the Jewish law, but at least representatively for what 
the law represents, we too Christians also desire to do the same things. And really, to be righteous before God as a Christian, it should be our greatest pursuit. It's also what we learn when we first turn to Christ. Oh, we need to be holy. We need to be righteous. So what happens is that when we turn to Christ and we believe by faith in him, and that leads to our salvation, we are told then, okay, you must attend church. And then if you have a foul mouth, don't curse anymore. Make sure you don't get drunk. Take drugs. Honor your parents. Give to the poor. Be compassionate. Go on missions. Evangelize. Be generous. Now, all these things are fruits of our faith. They are exhibited as a result of true faith. But they, in and of themselves, do not make us righteous. They don't make us, ultimately, in and of themselves, they don't make us pleasing to God. Now, here's the question. Why not? Why don't these things make us pleasing and righteous to God on their own? There's a couple of reasons. There are many, but let me just give you a couple. First, all of these fruits, these deeds, they cannot transform hearts. They can't. They can't change, ultimately, your heart. Now, here's the thing. The law, we, Paul is never saying that the law is evil. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good if one uses it properly. So that's 1 Timothy 1.8. It's clear there, then that the law in and of itself is good. The reformers described three uses of the law. One was it reveals sin. Two, it restrains evil. And three, it shows what is pleasing to God. So those are three good uses of the law. Think of a, a mirror again. I used this illustration last week, but let me press that illustration one step further. So there's a mirror. And you have, the mirror shows a blemish on your face. So let's transfer or analogize that blemish to the law. The law shows what is a blemish on your heart. And imagine then that your blemish on your face starts getting really itchy. And so you start itching it. And you're not looking at a mirror. You're just sort of itching your face and you start you know, digging in your fingernail and you're really itching. And, it's, and slowly but surely, that blemish is becoming infected and it's starting to ooze pus. And it's, <laughs> it's creating a real disturbance on your face but you can't even tell. So when you go back to the mirror and you see the pus oozing out and you see all this, something really bad happening, what does that mirror do? It restrains you. You start saying, I shouldn't itch that anymore. It's getting really pussy. It's getting disgusting. But if you were to say that to a child, even if they were to look at their face, what would they do? No matter how much that their, their face is being distorted, they will go back and itch their face all the more. Why? Because it can't change. The mirror doesn't actually get rid of the infection or the actual underlying problem. See, it has the power to restrain. It can do some bit of restraining, 
but it can't restrain perfectly or wholly. Eventually, that restraint will not be enough. So the law might be able to say, if you were to say to someone, hey, don't steal, they might decide not to steal. But then one day, as an adult, on their tax return, the government says you need to pay this much more. Isn't it so tempting suddenly in your heart to say, well, the government, they already have enough of my money. They're not getting any more. And I'm just going to, it's just a little fudging of the numbers. It's no big deal. The heart doesn't change. It, it can't. And the law, no matter what, can't change that heart. The mirror can't change or impact or even fully restrain. It only shows what's wrong. And so the law never gets rid of the problem, not ultimately. But it definitely does show us that we have a problem. And that's important. So that is an important part of the law, but it doesn't transform our hearts. Secondly, is that the law cannot be kept perfectly. The law cannot be kept perfectly. Listen to James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now you might think, that seems so unfair. Why is that the case? Because the problem with this idea of trying to keep most of the law is that one, Peter and Barnabas showed hypocrisy usually reveals itself when you're trying to just keep part of the law. And oftentimes when we're trying to keep part of the law but not the whole law, there's this sense of trying to prove our own righteousness before God and when we fail, we either feel so bummed out about failing that we feel guilty and ashamed and we don't want to go to God and, and surrender and f- ask for forgiveness, or we will judge others, but never keeping the whole law ourselves. I was uh, talking with a friend, and we were talking about the, the idea of the maximum-minimum principle of people who are in school. And it's just actually... Frankly, many people in this world, all of us have this idea, which is the idea of it is that you try to get the maximum grade possible by doing the least amount of work in school. Imagine, so if let's say an A is 100 to 90, you you do all you can to get a 90 because you try to maximize the grade, you still get an A, but you don't want to actually do the work of 100. You want to do the work of 90, just making it. Why does that happen? Because we want to think that we, we can look excellent without being excellent. It's sort of the hu- human nature. We're, we just like that. We want to look good, but we don't want anyone to look at our house and actually see all the stuff that we had that we cleaned up. It's all in the closet. Open the closet, boom, everything comes out. And so we want people to come in and say, wow, your house is immaculate. And they start moving over to, don't go to the closet. (laughs) That closet has all the skeletons in it, all of it. It's all shoved in because that's the max min principle of our righteousness. See, that's sort of how we think of oftentimes our view of God. If I attend church 85% of the time, and miss 15%. Don't you think God should be happy with that? I'm, I'm mostly worshiping God. Or there's 10 commandments. 
How about if I follow eight of them most of the time? God, you should be so happy with the fact that I'm getting an 80 with your commandments. Or, you know, how about if I read the Bible six days out of the week or 6.7 days out of the week? That should be enough for God. That is so much better than that person over there. The problem with all of this is that we think that that makes us righteous. And whether you realize it or not, we are succumbing ourselves to that principle, that idea that God should be pleased with that. That's good enough. It's good enough for God. It's good enough for my family. It's good enough for everyone around me. But James says that if you don't keep the whole law perfectly, you don't keep the law at all. The law is good if one uses it properly. It just isn't used properly so much. So we know that really the works of the law, it's not enough to cause us to be righteous before God. But there is a, another way, justified, another phrase, that, a word that Paul uses in this passage. And I spoke about it last week, but the word justified is a legal word where God's verdict is not guilty for those who have faith in Christ. Its legal roots are found in the Old Testament. And so when we are justified, we are declared righteous legally with Jesus' perfect righteousness. I really love the way Jerry Bridges puts it. He says this, there is an old play on the word justified that it means just as if I'd never sinned. That expression speaks to the forgiveness of others, of, of sins, of our sins. When God charges our sins to Christ, they are no longer ours. He has removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. The penalty has been paid. God's justice is satisfied. His judicial wrath has been fully exhausted on his son. Truly, we stand before him just as if we'd never sinned, but there is another play on the word justification, that it also means just as if I had always obeyed. So this word justification, it's at the heart of the gospel. And both aspects of that word, just as if I had never sinned, just as if I had fully obeyed, is the essence of the good news of the gospel of Christ. And you need both to understand good news. Because it's not just good enough that we had never sinned, it's also that we are righteous to stand before God one day eternally as acceptable, a pleasing, holy sacrifice. And you and I, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are loved, accepted, worthy forever as a son and daughter because when God sees you, he declares you righteous because he sees his son's blood covering you. He sees his sacrifice, his atoning work, taking your place. And through that declaration, you are righteous today in this moment, which is why we can, um, but know this is that it's a legal declaration. God is not saying you are righteous in yourself. He's not saying, you know what, you never sin, so by your strength and your effort and your righteous deeds, you are justified. That's not it at all. It's a legal de declaration. It's a transfer of an account. 
And that legal declaration is so significant. Here's why. Because it means that you can be justified by faith in Christ today and declared righteous, but you still sin. Because here's the problem is that for those of us who are understand justification and saying, yes, we're righteous in Christ, but then why do I sin so much? Why do I still struggle? Why is the battle against my flesh still so strong as today? And the reason is because it's a legal declaration. You still struggle with sin. You still will do displeasing things to God. God is pleased with you because of what Christ has done. But it doesn't mean that God takes pleasure when you sin. When you sin, you are righteous because of Jesus. But it doesn't mean that God thinks your sinning is good, like as if to say that God loves sin. No, God detests sin. But when he sees you, even as you're sinning, he sees his son. This is the gospel. This is why it is so astounding and glorious and why Paul doesn't want to give it up and why it's so tempting for every one of us to want to give it up because we still always at the core think, but it's got to be me, a little bit me. No, to take, um, to take away the gospel and think that it's a little bit me is to rob Christ of his glory. So recognize that the legal quality of the gospel is so essential to understanding our lives today. The third phrase that's represented in verses 15 through 16 is faith in Jesus Christ repeated again, meaning it's our response. There is a response to this justification. It's called faith. We believe that there is truly nothing that we do that makes us righteous. So how do you live then? When I was in seminary and, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was a pastor by the name of D. James Kennedy. And he was a pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And he wrote a, um, they had a whole curriculum called Evangelism Explosion. I don't know if any of you know about that. And it's sort of like this whole scripted uh, script of things to say when you're meeting uh, people who don't know Christ. And it always began with two questions. The first question was, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you would go to heaven? If you were to die tonight, do you know for sure you would go to heaven? The second question is, if you were to die and appear before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? Do you know, uh, how would you respond? Now here's the thing about that second question is that so many people, when they hear that question, do you know, uh, why should I let you into heaven? So many people respond with some sort of work they do. Even Christians. So if I were to ask you, uh, what would God say if he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? And if your response is, well, I, I was baptized, or I went to church, or I served in this ministry, or I was a pastor, I was a missionary. If you were to answer that way, then you're answering the way that the circumcision party would answer, the way that Peter answered in this, in a sense, that there's something I do that makes me worthy enough to go to heaven. Now, you might think, no, I wouldn't answer that way. I would say, it's all Jesus. But functionally, 
let me put it to you this way. If God were to take everything away from you, your loved ones, your wealth, your career, your health, if he were to make you like Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, a quadriplegic, if God were to do all of that, your cognitive ability, would you say to God, but Jesus, I did this and this for you. How can you do this to me? If your answer to that is, I did all these things, how can you do this to me? Then my friends, really, that's the same heart as the person who says, if God were to say, why should I let you in? You would say, well, I did all these things for you. It's, it's the real missing of the idea that anything, any blessing we have in this world is grace upon grace. Grace is if all Jesus did was die on the cross for you and give his life for you and allow you to be with him eternally, then even if you were to live the most miserable life here on earth, you would still be rich in grace. Because again, and this is just, to me, it's just sheer logic. If we live 80 to 90 years of misery in this world, but an eternity of blessing, then either that eternity blessing is a fantasy, but if it's a reality, then misery in this world is still nothing compared to the eternity of blessing. Now, either that's true, that seems very logical to me, and we really, either we believe it or we don't. And if we do believe it, then it should make us content even when it is difficult and hard. So if the coronavirus, and we are all thinking, okay, va the vaccine's here and but what if for the rest of our lives we were supposed to live like this? Would we still be content and joyous and have peace? It is a really, really evil theology and a practice to think that to be a Christian means automatically everything goes well. It's one of the real fatal flaws of every modern-day Christian movie, which admittedly, I like pretty much none of them. And it's because it's always, they throw in the, the uh, conversion experience, the sinner's prayer, and then everything goes great. Their lives, the, the married couple that was really having a hard time, suddenly they love each other so much. And then, you know, if, if the, um, I don't know, if a football team always losing, now they always win. You know, if it's, everything is wonderful. Everything works perfectly. That is an anti-gospel. Gospel shows always, it's not always like that. Jesus died on a cross. The apostles, all, most of them were martyred, except for John, who was in exile. He was quarantined for the rest of his life by himself because he believed in Jesus. No, my friends, I think that this American, Western, and even this weird uh, prosperity gospel, Hollywoodish morphing within even the Christian film industry and a lot of the books has this idea that to be a Christian means everything goes well. What Paul is saying is that when we respond in faith, what we do is we have an eternity before us that is glorious, far more, infinitely more than what we experience in this world. And so we have to instead say, I trust you, Lord, no matter what. Look at verse 16 again. By 
works of the law, no one will be justified. You say, I believe that, but is this really true? Don't we tend to argue with God and with others that our works of the law should make us count for something? Have you ever gotten into an argument with your spouse if you're married? And, you, and eventually you get to this really weird place where you say, but look, I'm so much better than those other husbands out there. And we use, I'm so, if you were married to this wife, you know how hard your life would be? It's such a temptation to always compare ourselves because we have this inflated view of the self thinking that some work in me makes me righteous. But as we learned last week, our righteous deeds are filthy gym bag rags. They are disgusting before God. And if we try to stand on them on their own, we are lost and hopeless. We also find out that new life comes through death in verses 17 through 19. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What's Paul's point? He's saying that he and Peter are justified in Christ and they're sinners as well. So they're justified in Christ and they're sinners at the same time. And it is possible. Martin Luther described it this way with a Latin phrase, simul justice et peccator, simultaneously just and sinner. This is the identity and the power of the Christian life. We know we are saved by grace through justification by faith alone. We cannot and will not ever be rejected by God who is our Father because of Christ and all that he has done. But at the same time, we still battle sin. We're always conscious of the depth of our hearts and our need for Christ. And we fight the fight of faith. To be a believing Christian who believes in justification by faith alone is never a sop for simply saying, I could do whatever I want because I'm saved. That is a person who doesn't understand justification by faith alone. No, to know justification by faith alone is to love justice, to do mercy, to walk humbly with our God, as Micah 6.8 says. So for those who think justification means we can sin as much as we want, Paul argues against this in Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And that's Romans 6. So we can't get, must never get to that idea that we can just do whatever we want. If we are freed from the law to be righteous by being justified, We've died to the law. That is, the law shows us that we will always die if we try to follow the law to save us. So for Paul, through the law, he felt condemned, just like Martin Luther. He died to it. And if you really consider your heart, if you think of all the people you apply a standard to, including yourself, you also will die to that law. That law will kill you. It will never make you happy, never make you joyous. 
In fact, it just makes you more irritable, more frustrated, more anxious with your life. The more laws you have, the more frustrating it is because no one can keep your standard of the law and you can't keep your own standard of the law. That's why it's miserable. Paul is saying, no, you gotta, not only you have to guard yourself from actually being killed by the law, dying to the law, but you have to actually die to the law too. You can die to the law. We can now decide that we are no longer going to use the law to do something it cannot do because it can't change hearts. Parents, this is a real stark warning to all of you, to all of us. It's so tempting to come out with a list of rules and to say, obey this, obey this, obey this. Why? So your child says, because I'm your parent, you must. If that's it, you can force them to obey the law. It works. The law works for a time. It restrains evil for a temporary moment, but eventually they're not going to be in your house anymore. They're going to be adults. And if all you've done is depend on the law to change your child's heart, you've lost because it will never change their hearts. It can change behavior for a moment, but when they're gone, ask, talk to some of the, us older parents. You know, as many rules you lay out, those things, once, they, once kids become adults, it doesn't actually impact them. The gospel impacts, but the gospel requires patience, grace, mercy, explanation, kindness, compassion, all those things, and it reminds you of your own dying to your own laws, to your own self, and it is hard, but it is life-giving. It is transformative. We are alive only in Christ alone. See what Paul is saying. Die to the law now, and you can live. Our power is not in the law. Our power is in we are justified by faith alone. The law gives do's and don'ts. The gospel power is found not in the do's and don'ts. It's found in Christ, in Christ alone. And when that person understands Christ and Christ alone, then we see transformation. We see forever changing. We see that person changed forever and also changing. We see transformation and we see someone being transformed. And both are happening concurrently. Right? As Luther noted, we are justified, but we're still a sinner, and we're still being changed. Let me close with a quote from Tim Keller. I think he just uh, hits the nail on the head. He says, don't you see, it's not enough to say, I shouldn't be afraid. I shouldn't be bitter. I shouldn't be worried. No, you shouldn't. Go ahead, just try that. Go home and hit your head on the wall. See how far you get. I no longer live the life I live. Do you see, when St. Augustine, after he became a Christian, and by the way, before, he was pretty much a sex addict, he met an old girlfriend. This is after he became a Christian in the street. She came up and said to him, Augustine, how are you? And he said, fine, thank you very much. He was very cordial, but then he walked away. None of the kind of slobbering she used to remember. As he walked away, she wondered, maybe he actually mistook me for somebody. She says, Augustine, it is I. 
He turned to her and said, yes, I know, but it is not I. And here's what he's saying. He says, lady, I care for you. I'm so glad you're here. You mean a lot to me, but you're no longer my righteousness, so I'm not addicted to you. I don't need your arms anymore. So as he walked away, she called to him and said, Augustine, it is I. He turned and said, I know, but it is not I. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Do you see the difference? He's not saying, I do this and this and this. No, he's a new person. He's living a new life. That doesn't mean everything goes perfectly for him. And sometimes you still sin. You will sin. But you can always say, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. We're going to talk. So I saved that verse for one message on its own because I love Galatians 2.20. It is one that you all should memorize. It's something that should be deeply embedded into your hearts. But that's Augustine's whole point. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I'm a new person. Let me just close with Augustus uh, Toplady's Rock of Ages. The second verse. I quoted the first verse last time. Here's the second one. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your Son. In Christ Jesus, we are made anew alive. There are some here in this room watching at home who think, how can I, who sin so much, truly be a new creation? Where the old has gone, the new has come. But may we see what Augustine saw. This man who was filled with such uh, such a, a immorality in his soul, which was ultimately a rebellion against you. But when he came to turn to you, he saw himself as anew. Didn't mean that he no longer sinned. It just means that through Christ Jesus, who is Lord of all, through his blood shed for us, we are made anew, alive once again. I pray that we would respond to life not through the law, thinking that makes us righteous, but through Christ, through grace. And every time we are tempted to go back to our own righteousness, our own merit, by judging others, by looking to ourselves and feeling condemned through guilt and shame, may we go back and see that you have not rejected us because of your son Jesus, which should cause us to worship you, and to delight in you, and to love you. We humbly come before you, O Lord. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, that through Christ Jesus we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone. And you make us righteous. You declare us righteous. And we are free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. So we respond to you, O Lord, by battling sin, by saying against Satan that he will not in any way uh, we will not submit and succumb to his schemes, but we will lift our eyes to you knowing that our help comes from you alone. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.